Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Simon Frank. Simon is the founder and CEO of Forensic Equity, an independent forensic science service provider which ensures that forensic evidence presented in criminal cases is both fair and accurate. Simon, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you and thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, Simon. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader for a moment in isolation, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Uh, I think the key to good leadership um, is listening. Um, is listening to your staff, uh, listening to your customers, to your clients, uh, taking the time really to think and process that information, um, and then, of course, um, direct an action uh, on that feedback. And if we think about your personal leadership style just for a moment, um, how would you go about describing that? Um. I, I, I would generally, uh, I guess, uh, in some ways, uh, generally operate as a democracy. Mm. Um, but, um, you, you know, you have to be the one who stands at the front. Um, ultimately, you're responsible uh, for everything that goes on. Um, and um, there may be times that you, you do have to just make the decision yourself of what feels right, even if you know, the general consensus is that, that might be the wrong way to go. Um, and I think a leader knows when to do that. They know when to listen, but also they know uh, their own strengths, their own capabilities, and when to be decisive. Mm. The pressures of leadership are something that people maybe forget a little bit about when they associate it with being in the public eye, with politics, with sports, and with celebrity sometimes, as we do have a tendency to do perhaps in this country. And there's been a lot of um, need for leaders um, in the current generation to take key decisions at this point in time as well through the COVID-19 pandemic as leaders have had to be proactive and both reactive to changing guidelines, changing circumstances and guide their businesses, organisations through this current pandemic situation. Um, For yourselves, Simon, um, at Forensic Equity, how have you found it adapting to the challenges of COVID-19? Because I can imagine it's posed one or two for yourselves as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, certainly for what we do, um, our employees are the heart of our business. Um, and so um, it's been very important for me throughout this time uh, to make sure that all of our staff um, are well, um, are safe, um, and um, can operate um, as effectively as possible. Um, so we've put together uh, rotors um, to um, have make sure that we've not got as many people in the laboratory um, whilst we can still operate, etc., um, people are very much being set up to work from home. Um, and I think actually that's been in some ways a very positive move um, and a, a positive thing that, that I hope that we can take out of this uh, COVID uh, crisis uh, is, is the use of technology. Um, mm. Because I think uh, businesses have been over the years slow to adopt. Um, and, um, and, and I think it's actually been very useful and probably taken us forward uh, 10 years or more uh, in terms of our use of um, remote, remote working uh, in terms of um, uh, online calls, um, etc. 
And that delivery of leadership from a distance, keeping the communication channels open, that remote working system seems to work quite well across the board from various discussions I've had with business leaders such as yourself, Simon. So can you see this being part of the new normal way of working and working practices fundamentally changing as a whole as a result of this? I certainly I certainly would like to. Um, as a business, um, we've always tried to um, be efficient with our use of time um, and ensuring that um, the scientists in the business, for example, um, are are, uh, are managed um, and given as much time to to work on the science as possible without being uh, bogged down um, in other roles which which other staff can do. And that's very much the way we structured our business. And uh, and I think this is really an extension of that. Um, and it has enabled um, you know one. I think a lot of time people spend a lot of time in the day commuting back and forth and so on. And that in itself has a cost um, to the business, to the environment, and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, and, that, and that's been greatly beneficial. That 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 you know those those costs being cut, and, and suddenly people aren't commuting an hour each day or two hours each day. And that time they've either got to spend with their family, um, or indeed um, get some more work done. So I think I think it's it's um, that's actually a very positive um, uh, benefit from this from this crisis. And, and I think one that. We certainly, as a business, will, will will most certainly try to continue because we have seen um, the the sort of uh, positive mental uh, health benefits of, of that as well. Certainly, because there's been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this period, as well as sustainability. And that's going to be really buoyed, that focus, by the new sorts of ways of working that businesses are currently weighing up at this point in time, uh, for sure. Um, You said there were some real positives in that sense to take away from this quite difficult and quite tragic time. But otherwise, um, it's the experience of crisis management as well, isn't it? Because it's a real learning curve for the current generation of business leaders. And learning, of course, is... Um, something that's fundamental in one's development in, um, in, in and of itself. Um, but crisis management, that experience, the fact that employees are having to really go beyond their comfort zones and that's going to develop their character as well and build resilience amongst them. There are going to be some real positives to take from this experience for those businesses that do manage to get through fundamentally, aren't there? Yeah, I think, I think most certainly, um, you know, um, Every every crisis always creates opportunities, um, and uh, those businesses that can adapt um, and, and that. Um, and I think, in a certain sense, and staff will want businesses to adapt. Now, um, people have, I think, felt a change in the way of life. Uh, many, I think, for for, for for positive, spending more time with their family, spending more time outdoors. Um, you know, it's it, it's been a real sort of take a moment sit back uh, and just reevaluate um, your life and what you're doing. And I think a lot of, a lot of the businesses that will do best are those who, 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 who take that on board, uh, understand that their staff are going to want to work more remotely, have more time, et cetera, et cetera, uh, have more flexible working um, and, and adapt to that and, and make sure that they can service their clients um, whilst um, offering that, that to their staff. And with regards to your own staff, of course, you've said that they're pretty much the lifeblood of what it is you do and that they have done sort of quite well with this. Um, Have you been encouraged by what you've seen from them um, during this period, considering that we've already mentioned that people have really gone above and beyond during this time to keep things ticking over at various businesses? Uh, Yeah, I mean, mean, uh, you know, we've not, um, we've we've taken the decision. We've probably 
um, for various reasons, running about 60% of our normal capacity at the moment. Um, so potentially we could have looked at um, furloughing and things like that from staff. Um, I took the decision not to. Um, I don't. Um, I, I, I'm not. Uh, I don't like the idea. Um, I think that we need to support our staff uh, in every way possible. Um, we've been very prudent over the years in the business, uh, building a war chest of funds, uh, and we use that to to, to cope with the situation. Um, I think it's very important for motivation, um, and um, the, all of our staff have been um, extremely reactive to the situation mm. and have. Um, being, being, you know, where where we need them to be at all times, which is which is great. That's fantastic to hear. And considering that you seem to have coped quite well with the uh, pandemic situation thus far, um, based upon your experience, not just of managing this crisis, Simon, but also within business prior to that, um, if you had to give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, what sort of advice would you give them? I, I think the key again is, is to listen. Um, I always say to my staff, um, I never would ask you to do anything that I haven't done myself or wouldn't do myself. Um, and I think that's really important. If you're in a leadership role, you need to understand your business from the ground up. Um, you need to um, you need to have almost, in a sense, done every role within the business, or, or at least have a very good understanding of it. Um, because unless you understand what people do, what people's needs are, what the needs of your clients are at all the different levels of your business, um, then then you really can't um, lead effectively um, and, and grow a business. And just looking back um, again, um, Simon, um, if we backtrack for a second, if we, um, you were to maybe describe some of the key influences and inspirations that have had an impact on you as you've developed throughout your career? What would sort of be the big ones that stick out there? Um, so um, I guess number one would be my mother. Um, I came into the industry because uh, my mother was a forensic scientist for her whole career um, and is still one of the leading drug scientists in Europe. Um, she's been a, a huge, uh, had a huge impact on, on me. Um, I also worked in, in investment banking for a couple of years, uh, which I think is a very, you, you sort of see the world from a different perspective, uh, very much client focused, um, long hours, a um, lot of deadlines to meet. Um, I think that holds you in very good stead. Um, and I've also, it, it's, um, it's also just um, observing people and um, observing situations, understanding why someone made the decision they did and, and then evaluating yourself and and you can learn from all of those things um i i think you just need to um uh, to to look at things um take time to think about things and and see what you can learn from it because there's always situations to learn from Mm, I would agree with that for sure. And um, learning essentially, we can't really hope to develop into effective people or even effective leaders without it. It's a vital experience. Um, it's vital experience to do that. And I think we have to embrace this current pandemic situation as one of the greatest learning curves of our time if we look at it positively, don't we? Most certainly, most certainly. Um, it's um, it's an impressive t- time for us all. Um, I don't think anyone um, would have predicted that we would be where we are. Um, and I think, um, unfortunately, it's something that is not going to become normal uh, or we're not going to get back to normal if we ever do uh, for some time yet. Um, so I think it's important um, to adapt. Uh, and as I say, I'm not, I'm not sure there will 
um, potentially ever be a normal again. I, I'm not sure uh, we will go back to, to the way we were. Um, I, I think we'll, we'll all have a slightly different way of living. And I think that, that, that may well be a positive thing, um, hopefully a positive thing that, that remains uh, with a vaccine and, and um, you know, we can get back to a sort of normality. But I'm, I don't think the workplace or the social environment will be quite the same again. And if we do think about what the future now holds over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, in your view, Simon, what do you envision for yourself and for forensic equity as a business? And what do you really hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic, hopefully emerge from the other side and begin to really look at the long term future under that new normal? Yeah, well, I, I think we, so <clears throat> at the start of this in March, there were 37,000 criminal cases waiting to be tried in the Crown Court, so the, 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 the most serious cases. Uh, I think the figure out today was that that's risen now to be 51,000 because trials haven't been able to go ahead, etc. So we have a huge backlog of cases waiting to be heard, um, and that's a problem. Um, and the government really has, uh, well, two options, uh, to delay those cases and potentially look at trying the most serious ones first and just keeping the others going, uh, but delaying them significantly. Um, or they can look at um, dropping cases um, and offering no further evidence in certain cases, which I think is a, would be a mistake and is a huge risk, um, uh, and especially to the victims of those alleged crimes, um, would, would not be justice. So how do we deal with it? Well, I think the courts need to use technology um, and we need to um, be using technology to potentially hear cases uh, where the jury are not in the courtroom uh, and instead they're on a, on a screen uh, similar to um, how the Prime Minister has been conducting his cabinet meeting. Um, and I think that's something that we, need, we, we seriously need to look at because, again, the use of technology can increase capacity for businesses and, indeed, the courts. Um, if, uh, if a jury member doesn't have to travel or people don't have to travel from prison and the judge can hear more cases in a day, uh, scheduling is made easier, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I hope um, we've, the system has tried and failed, unfortunately, before after billions of pounds of investment to, to use technology effectively. Um, but I hope that this can um, focus minds um, and that actually we'll, we'll, we'll use it effectively to, to manage this, um, this backlog. Uh, and make sure that we that we can get justice for for all of the um, people involved in the system. Certainly going to be a very interesting time, Simon, for sure. And I think over the uh, the next uh, few months, when we start to understand more about what the uh, the new normal will look like and how um, your industry, especially, is um, adapting, it would be great to catch up and have you back on just to see what exactly is going on, and also understand how Forensic Equity itself is uh, getting on. I think that would be hugely informative um, based on um, how insightful it's been having you on the air with us today. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Be delighted to. I think that would be fantastic, uh, Simon. Um, it's been a fantastic experience uh, for me, um, of course, having you um, on the air to discuss these issues. Uh, very interesting indeed. Um, in the meantime, until we do touch base again, I'm sure in the future, please do take care and stay safe um, with everything still going on. Because as we both well know, we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. And there's still plenty of time for things to change one way or the other. Indeed, indeed. 
That was Simon Frank speaking, everyone, the founder and CEO of Forensic Equity. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation during his career, did Lord Blunkett, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, and he accomplished all that despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the, public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.